Our text for today is Matthew 2. And there is a chief significant question raised throughout the tale of the Magi. You know it. Uh, in Old King Herod, this very familiar story. And the question is this. What will you do with Jesus? How will you react to Jesus? Well, who is Jesus in Matthew 2? Well, nine times he's called the child. He never speaks. He never whispers any wisdom to any character. He's human. Um, In fact, a baby, a human at its most defenseless point. He must be moved around, protected from peril. Uh, Any baby, even Jesus, is, is very weak. He doesn't produce anything. He's in danger. He doesn't even know it. No wisdom comes from his mouth, just baby drool. Um, he's silent. He takes naps. He has little baby feet, little hands, little blinking eyes that are close in safe protection of his mother to her chest. Matthew has gone out of his way to show that the divine God became human in Jesus. And that that human is really human. That God is actually here on earth. That's the beauty of the incarnation. That God put skin on And moved into our neighborhood. That he was really there, there as a baby. He's still himself as a human. And therefore, since God is king, this baby Jesus is king of the earth. And he never says anything or does anything. But he is king. He is who he is. Um, That's hard to remember. And a little hard to understand. Uh, I think we typically treat it. In Jesus as the title, as king, a little bit like my four-year-old daughter did when she was learning her songs for her Christmas program. Um, you know, she was learning Joy to the World. And she would sing uh, Joy to the World. Uh, how, why, how am I forgetting this song right now? Uh, Joy to the World. Lord has come. Let earth receive. And she would say, for ring. And I said, no, honey, it's her king. And she said, no, daddy, it's for ring. Don't you hear it? And although I I knew I was speaking over her head, I did say, you know, you can't forget that part. (laughs) The king part is crucial to this story. Uh, It's important. You can't leave it out. With Jesus, you have a great spokesperson uh, for human rights, maybe a moral statesman, a sort of mascot for Christianity. And we know you can do whatever you want with a mascot. But with Jesus, the king... You have something way more offensive, something more up in your face. Um, A king rules, and in this case, the ruler of the earth and everything in it, including us. So Jesus, the king, is a little bit harder to deal with. So we must rephrase the question based on Matthew's point, the premise that God, the king, has become man, and therefore man, the king, in Jesus of Nazareth, reigns on earth. The, the right question would be, what, what will you do with Jesus, the king? How will you react to the king who is right now a baby? Uh, in the movie Children of Men from 2006, which I don't recommend, um, Clive Owen's character, uh, and I, lo- I love this movie, uh, his main character lives in a world that is void of hope. And the reason that it's void of hope is because for two generations... Uh, women have stopped having babies. So there's no young people, right? Um, Now, our church is proof that this is fiction, right? We have a ton of babies. Um, So don't get scared. But in the movie, the world is totally void of hope. 
And something like the youngest character or the youngest person uh, dies of a disease and he's like 31. He or she's like 30. And they put it on the news and everybody's like, oh, no. You know, and their hope goes down another notch. And so Clive Owen's character stumbles across, and I have no idea how it came into existence, but Clive Owen's character stumbles across uh, a pregnant woman. And she would have been in the first pregnant woman in two generations. And so he spends the rest of the movie, um, you know, protecting her and, and trying to get her a place where they can study and figure out, you know, how did this healthy pregnancy happen so we can get humanity back on track. Um, and, and he fails. And what happens is they end up in this kind of refugee building and there's marine-like, uh, there's a war going on. There's marine soldiers shooting at these refugees and they're trying to protect the baby. And, you know, in the midst of this gunfire, uh, she goes into labor. And m- one of my most favorite scenes in any movie, uh, totally redeemed this movie for me, is... The baby is born into this chaos, and then Clive Owen's character has this idea. And he decides to take the baby, who is now crying. And no one had heard this. I mean, it had been years since people have heard a live baby crying. He decides to take this baby and walk into the gunfire, literally. Into the chaos. And he, like, walks down as people are shooting. And it's so awesome. Because what you see is the soldiers, one by one, begin to react To what they see. And the whole movie is leading up to this point where they react. And one soldier literally lays down his gun and falls to his knees, almost like in a worship like state. And another, you know, another soldier just makes the sign of the cross. And, but the cool part, and and no one is firing the gun. I mean, there's this eerie silence that, this peaceful silence that stumbles across this, and all you hear is this baby crying because of the hope. Um, That it represents, the baby represents everything that's been lost for humanity. It is the most profound moment in the movie when they react and the whole movie is leading up to their reaction. And the same is true for your life. Your whole life has been leading up to how you will react to Jesus the King. You could even go as far as to say that's your destiny to react to Jesus the King. How will you react to Jesus the King? What will you do with Jesus who is King? That's what Matthew wants from us. Uh, That's what he's getting at in this passage. It's our destiny. So what are possible reactions? How can you react to Jesus? Well, John Stott's basic Christianity became the basis Um, for a lot of the talk sequence that we do in Young Life to students who don't know Jesus. That's what Young Life is about. And in that book, it's a great book, highly recommend it, he outlines what he calls an appropriate response to Jesus the King. And that he says, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but he says along these lines, there are only three ways that you can properly react to Jesus the King. One is you can run in terror. Two, attack in anger. Or three, bow in surrender. Those are the only three. Run in, run in terror, attack in anger, or bow in surrender. Every other option, get this, every other option lacks intellectual integrity. Because it ignores the whole claim of kingship. That, that, that's the whole point of this. 
the two main characters of this chapter, the Magi and King Herod, uh, are the soldiers of our movie. Uh, they are set to react to the baby Jesus. And I am more than confident that in these characters, you will be awed and inspired, convicted, encouraged. Uh, for they are the, the literary genius Matthew's intentional comparison of prototypes of response to Jesus the King. Um, and as we look at each party, each character, notice what they find in the king as they respond. First, the Magi. With the Magi, let's not miss... Matthew's point here. Speaking in terms of race, these Magi are Persian foreigners. They're Gentiles, right? Outsiders to the faith of Israel. Speaking in terms of religion, they're practicing pagans. Uh, They practice idolatry as astrologers. Not just studying the movement of the stars, but seeking to live to find the meaning uh, meaning in their lives behind the movement of the stars. Literally, they they wait for another God besides the God of Israel to tell them how to live their lives. They're heathens. If you want to know the popular opinion of them based on the day, read Ezekiel 21 or Isaiah 47. As astrologists, magicians, they were all but cursed because of their Gentile pagan beliefs. That's these guys. They are considered disqualified, enemies of God. They previously have no basis or qualification to react to Jesus. And now, Matthew wants us to see this. They are center stage to react to and respond to the baby Jesus, the king. They're right in the middle. This is intentional. In the new kingdom, Jesus is representing the new Israel in this passage. And these Gentiles are now included in the plan. They're invited to be loyal. They're invited to be worshiping, loyal subjects of the true king. That's why Jesus went through this little route that he did. You probably recognize that if you've read the Old Testament before. It's retracing the route of Israel. Jesus is the new Israel in this, ushering in God's plan of salvation. We know this because he beckons them to come. That Jesus personally beckons the Magi to come to him. Um, You know, you remember their journey. We just read it, right? They follow the star. The star leads them as far as it goes. They find Herod. They say, where's this baby? Herod calls the religious teachers. Um, The religious teachers come and say, well, everybody knows that scripture in Bethlehem. They go, okay, we'll go to Bethlehem. Um, They go there and they find Jesus. But what I'd like to share with you is this. They find more than the king. They find the king's grace. Persian, foreigners, Idolaters find the grace of Jesus in seeking the king. What do I mean? They find grace upon grace upon grace. Three measures, uh, in fact, and there are probably more, but I identify three levels of juicy, incredible, surprising measures of in-your-face grace that surprise me about this passage um, and I think will surprise you. The first one, notice this. Jesus meets them where they are at. This is amazing. Where are they at? Their heads are in the sky, right? They're astrologers. They started with what they know, their expertise. Do you see that? They start with astrology, looking for meaning from the stars, just as they had always done. 
Is there truth out there? Well, yes. Well, if so, it must be in the stars. They, they see this bright star, which a lot of people think was Jupiter and Saturn coming together in 7 BC, which is documented outside of the Bible. And they say, well, because of that, what that represents, there must be a new king of the Jews we have to go see. Um, Jesus meets them in their astrology first. He meets the fishermen in their nets. The astrologers he meets in the stars. Now, of course, though, that's not enough. The second measure of grace, and this is my favorite. This is my favorite part of, of this whole scripture. The second measure is supernatural revelation from the scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures. Uh, this is the second measure of grace. You see, their map ends. The st- astrology only goes so far, right? You can only follow the Big Dipper you know, so far, and they realize they need more truth from an outside source. I love that they, they apparently had no trouble saying to themselves, well, astrology is great, but we need more at this point. And they find that more from the outside truth of the Bible. Amen? Isn't that great? What a grace. And it leads them to the saving revelation of the king himself. And finally, the third measure of incredible grace. Listen to this. They are allowed to suffer for the king. They're allowed to give. And their gift is received. And these formerly idolater uh, Persian foreigners that had no place at the table... Now give their gifts and advance the kingdom and literally move Jesus into Egypt for safety. People think they use the gold and that kind of thing to, uh, for their journey. They're able to give. That's grace. And so they do. They are prototypes of the right response. They come to the end of themselves. They trust the scripture. They go further in faith. They didn't have until the scripture gave it to them and fall down in utter worship to the king. And they leave, they leave differently. I love that. Such a little point, but they leave it by a different route. You know, is that true about you when you worship the king? Do you leave differently? Uh, What about this Sunday? You know, I was thinking back, Aubrey asked me how long we've been coming here. I was thinking about my first Sunday here. And I, when I I first came to the, it was the old building. I did leave differently. I was angry. And I told Libby, it's a two hour service. Are you kidding me? You know. So I did leave differently. But you know what? (laughs) Through essentials, like the Magi, I was converted. (laughs) To thinking through the things that we do and how we worship. And I truly do leave differently. Because of the liturgies. And the things that we do to worship God together. Do you leave differently? The Magi represent what... The pagan sinner can become through God the visitor. And they are the prototypes of right response. How can we apply this? That grace is your grace. That grace is your grace. It should shock you, that grace. We were the ones, like the Magi, on a crash course to hell... Destined to be outsiders, making deals with the dark side. We were the ones lost, 
living blindly, scattered, separated, selfish, insecure, trusting in whatever futile philosophy had got us this far somewhat unscathed. We were doomed to irrelevance, doomed to darkness, doomed to an endless pursuit of passions with unsatisfying results. When we thought we were wise, biblically speaking, we were fools, complete fools, looking at all the wrong things for the right wisdom. Consider this scripture. I, I feel like this frames it perfectly. It's Ephesians 2. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, like these magi were. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, the Magi received that mercy. They received far more riches than they were able to give. The revelation of grace came not just when we had it most churched up or dressed up. But when we were living in a degraded love, when we acted the coward, played the fool, buried the champion that is in us, he couldn't stop loving us and leading us in his grace. When we were most unworthy, most worldly, blind to our situation through the midnight mistakes and the daily stubbornness of life, he called us his beloved. He won't stop. He can't stop. He cannot stop leading us in grace. What is Matthew? What's the point he's trying to make? Here it is. When your tradition discourages it, when your brain denies it, when your heart doesn't feel it, when your entire being rejects it, when the religious elite say you're not welcome at the table, when you have no qualification for inherent lovableness, he loves you. He welcomes you. He beckons you. In the words of the great Brennan Manning, he loves you without condition, breaking point, or filter. He loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain. He expected more failure than you did from yourself and still loves you. He doesn't love the Magi exactly the way they are because they're them. He loves them in spite of the way they are because they're his and he is the king. Ava has a book I'm fond of. Uh, maybe some of you parents know it. It's called Runaway Bunny. Um, here's the message of the book. The, the little boy bunny says to the mother bunny, uh, I'm going to run away from you. And she says, well, where are you going? And he says, well, I'm going to become a sailor and sail off to the ocean away from you. And she says, if you become a sailor. I will become the tide and I will guide you back home. And the little bunny says, well, I will become a mountain climber and I will climb away from you. And she says, if you become a mountain climber, I will become the wind and I will steer, steer your course back home. And he says, well, I'll become this. And she says, well, I'll become this and bring you home. And he says, I'll become this and I'll become this and bring you back home. And at the end, the little boy bunny says, well, I might as well just stay. And she goes, good, 
Here's a carrot. The carrot has no theological significance, I don't think. But how about you? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you seen how he's led you through the passions, the things that, things that you are experts at uh, in life? You ready to trust the scriptures that were written to make Jesus known? There you have it. Magi bowing in surrender and worship as one reaction. But there is another proper and yet heart-wrenching, disgustingly sad reaction. And that is of who? King Herod. Exactly. Whereas the Magi react with worship in their hearts, Herod has murder on his mind. It, this is a direct comparison that Matthew is making. Um, I read about a well-known historian and atheist this week who claimed, uh, I know why everyone likes Christmas, right? Who, who doesn't like babies? Who, who doesn't? I mean, babies are easy to like, right? Who doesn't like babies? Just the thought of this baby crushes one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. You see that? The thought of Jesus knocks the wind out of Herod. It terrifies him. It, it makes him frantically nervous. Literally, it haunts him. You might be thinking, no way, one of the most powerful men in the world. Uh, uh, why would he be threatened by a baby? I'll tell you why. Because he's a king. And the wise men came and said, where is Jesus the king? Where is this baby who is king? Well, there's not enough room for two kings, right? We all know that. So immediately he is threatened. Um, out of that threat comes the most violent reaction you can imagine, which is the slaughtering of babies. And, and people think it was probably 20 or 30 boys, maybe upwards to 100, 150 that were slaughtered from this reaction. And you say, why such violence? Why such bitterness? Why such anger? And, but when you see it in this context, it's easy. When you don't love the child Jesus, when you don't love the child, you mistreat the children. And that's the consequence that Herod experiences. In one second, he goes from undisputed king to one defending his crown. His rule, his sovereignty. He encounters a true king and sees that he is a false king. And that is difficult. That is very hard. He could have been the first to worship the King Jesus. He heard the scripture just like the Magi. He could have gone before them. This is like, it's very close to where he's at. He could have gone. Instead, he decides to continue to worship himself. You know, I want to say, if, if you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian or you're not a follower of Jesus, first, welcome on behalf of the members. You know, I know Aubrey is pumped that you're here, uh, but we're all excited that you're here as a part of this conversation because it's your destiny, I, I believe, to respond to this claim of kingship of Jesus. Um, so as you check it out, let me free you. You can react strongly. In fact, you should react strongly to this claim of kingship. You can't be civilized. There's no room for it. There's no intellectual integrity to stay in the middle. Indifference, in this case, has no credibility. It, this can't be a non-issue. 
Let me dispel another notion um, that I think is one of the chief points Matthew is making as we talk about King Herod. Um, Of the hundreds of high school kids that I have known and have talked through faith with and faith in Jesus and how to follow Jesus, I would say that those that objected, 90% of them did so on the grounds that they believed the whole Jesus thing was a ploy to get them to be moral. Does that make sense? They're just like, you know what? It's someone that's trying to say, we want you to be good little boys and girls and um, behave right, so forget it. You know, we don't need some adult coming into this. We don't need more religion in our lives. We don't need someone to tell us what to do. We're our own king. We pick our own way. Um, That's why many won't come or, you know, even I've had a a few students over the years that have started like anti-Young Life clubs because they hate it. And they react strongly, and they should react strongly. In fact, it's right. They say, we'll choose for ourselves, pick our own way, take our own family's way, uh, you know, the city way or the, the country way or the way I was raised. Um, it, where I lead Young Life at TA, it's kind of the, I, I was trying to think of the song on the way here. It's like, I got a mm-hmm, and a four-wheel drive and a country boy can survive. You know, it's like, I'm a country boy, I'll survive out and most of them in the wilderness would die really quickly without their phones and stuff but it's like you know you get that sense of i'm my own king i'll survive the way my family has or the way i want to what's revealed in this chapter is that it's not about what we should do it's not about what uh, we could do it's about what god has done and what he is doing as king in this chapter Um, it's about what god did through the child jesus consider this uh where jesus was from is is nazareth and matthew highlights this point incredibly intentionally he picks his old testament references and uses this one and he kind of even has to twist it a little bit to like to say what he really wants to say Which is, Jesus is from this no-name, Hicksville little place um, called Nazareth. You know, it'd be like being from Elkton, Virginia, a little bit. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Tristan, I'm kidding. It's 10,000 times worse than Elkton. It's like Tom's Brook, Virginia. Anybody from Tom's Brook? Okay, it'd be like hitting a lottery if there was someone from Tom's Brook here. You know, in Tom's Brook, loitering is not a bad thing. It's the only thing to do. Like, there are more cows than people in Tom's Brook. That's the point of Matthew mentioning that Jesus is from Nazareth. It's a small town, no political significance, no extraordinary merit of its own. Um, it's, it's terrible. It's small. It's Nowheresville, USA. And the point behind it is this. God's weakness, what God can do that even looks weak, is 10,000 billion times stronger than our strongest strength. It's not about what we have done, should do, or could do. It's about what he has done. What he did by becoming a baby, entering our world, and dying for our sins. No, so following Jesus is not some ploy to encourage morality. 
And I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't matter how we live. Of course it does. It just doesn't start there. It starts about a statement in regards to what was accomplished by this king. Herod is the prototype of the wrong res- response. And discovering that he was a false king, that there was another king, he fought to defend his rule, his honor, his throne. He fought to maintain the progress he had made and to stay his own king. And of course, it was a waste. The true king eluded him, not because he wasn't seeking him, but because Herod rejected him in anger. Um, Let's quickly apply this. If you don't follow Jesus or consider yourself a believer, this fight is impossible to win. Do you see? You can't do enough to save yourself. You can't be enough to be, you can't do enough to be okay. Um, Maybe this will help. I, I was recently reading a biography of Ben Franklin. One of his main goals in life was to become virtuous, right? He invented a 13-week course that he called a course to moral perfection. And where he would tackle one virtue each week. And if he offended these, if there were offenses against the virtues he was tackling, he would put a little black mark in his calendar. Uh, just a little tally mark. And he would try to improve his, you know, his, mora, his morals in his life. And um, you know what you find if you look back at his diaries and calendars? Throughout the years when he would repeat this, the same virtues, little black marks. A year later, do it again, little black marks. A year later, a little bit. What does this prove? It proves that in Ben Franklin, there was a little King Herod. And in us, there's a little King Herod. Who wants to rule. Who wants it his own way. Um, to be king. And, and yet this little King Herod in us that says, pick your way of life. Does not produce the kind of God life we were made for. It's about what Jesus did to get us that God life. Not what we can do. All the while, the baby Jesus in this chapter stays silent. The silence of Jesus in Matthew 2 is present. But the silence of Jesus in Matthew 27 is deafening. See, in fact... There's another ruler named Pilate whose soldiers are the next to use the phrase, the king of the Jews, later in Matthew, number 20, uh, in uh, chapter 27. And where the baby Jesus stayed silent, the adult Jesus stays silent as well. Not the innocent childlike silence that we see here, but an intentional silence of moving forward and not stopping the mission that he was on As our king. That silence in Matthew 27. Led him to a place of perceived weakness. Um, A king with a crown. But a crown of thorns. At a time where there was no star in the sky. But where the sky went dark in midday. A place where those little baby feet. That we encountered in chapter 2. Have grown up and were pierced. With something like a railroad tie. And those little hands that had grown up were pierced with nails. And those little eyes that set against Mary's chest in comfort were blindfolded in 27. And spit upon and hit. And people said to him, if you are the king of the Jews, prophesy. Tell us who hit you. And they mocked the one that even the demons were afraid to mock. 
Because they were scared and knew who he was. Knew he was king. That weakness is our strength. That perceived weakness is the strongest that God was. And it was for us. That's what our king did for us. This is not a, you know, this is not tyranny. It's not a gesture of self, selfish control, but a pure demonstration of sacrificial love. It's not meant to force in us a robotic salute, but beckon a joyful surrender. That's our king. Because of his silence, you will react. You have to. Because of his silence, you will scream for joy in worship or grumble in anger to preserve your kingship. After all, there's only enough room for one king in our lives. So what will you do? How will you respond to Jesus, the king? Let me pray.